Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I am one of your co-hosts, Kirsten Korosek, and I am joined this week with by Ed Niedermeyer and a special guest, not Alex Roy, who is not here. Instead, we have Jack Wiest, who's the senior principal engineer at Intel, and we're going to learn all about what that means. But essentially, it sounds like what it means is you're working on all the great autonomous vehicle technology. Is that accurate, Jack? That's very correct. Okay. So I'm going to start with a really simple question, (laughs) and then we'll just get harder from there. Um, Why did Intel by mobilize spending something like 15 more than 15 billion dollars when perhaps the other choice could have been just buying one of the many autonomous vehicle startups out there for considerably less money that's a good question so i think when you think about intel and what we do well uh we're a we're a data company and so processing it moving it understanding it gaining insights from it uh and you if you look at the architecture of an autonomous vehicle um, Intel had a lot of the primary compute components that go into those vehicles. Um, but at that time, you know, we were missing one of the key pieces, which was perception and the ability for the vehicle to perceive uh, the environment around it. What Mobileye also brought were, two, uh, were, were additional other technology elements like mapping, uh, which also is a big source of data and data insights. Uh, as well as a very strong market share and driver assistance. And we believe that the path path to automated driving is through driver assistance. So with the acquisition of Mobileye, not only did we gain sort of a market leader in the driver assistance space, but we gained a company that had the technology ingredients necessary uh, and the opportunity to mature those ingredients, uh, what we felt was faster than anybody else on the path to fully automated driving. So um, that's... Really interesting because yeah, Mobileye clearly like well known as a, a major major of of ADAS, um, but like that there is a relationship between uh, ADAS development and, and autonomous drive, you know, full full autonomy development is a little bit controversial perhaps. Um, what what is that relationship? I mean, it, it, is this really sort of um, an incremental thing that the, some talk about about sort of you know, starting with ADAS and just sort of building on that? Or is it more about sort of developing core competencies uh, via ADAS development that can then be, you know, fleshed out into full autonomy? So what, what is the relationship between those two sort of similar, but also like quite different tasks? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both core competency, but also there's this sort of um, cycle, if you will, back and forth between what you learn in, in ADAS and how that feeds forward to automated driving and how technologies and automated driving can trickle down to ADAS. So what I mean by that is that um, from a core competency standpoint, you know, the same basic ability that you need to perceive the environment around the vehicle uh, is ne- is needed whether it's level two, three, four, or five. Doesn't really matter, right? The the point is the vehicle needs to accurately perceive its environment, um, and so um, with uh, mobilized strength and computer vision algorithms that have been widely deployed in over forty million vehicles around the world, um, those are some very mature algorithms that do quite a good job of perceiving the environment. Um, and so as we add more cameras around the car and we add additional sensor types, you know that foundation. Um, of computer vision uh, is a necessary ingredient, you know, as you go to higher levels of automation. You can't just kind of skip over that. Um, the second piece is, is as we invest in and develop 
technologies for fully automated driving, like a high-definition map, we actually have the unique opportunity to trickle those down and reuse those in driver assistance so you have a, an enhanced or even better driver assistance function. So, for example, something like lane keeping, you know, which typically would rely on the ability for the camera sensor to see the lane markings. Those lane markings, as we all know, aren't always there. Right. They're not always visible because of rain or snow or whatever else. But if you've got a high-definition map, in the car, and this is the car you're driving, still a driver assistance vehicle. If you've got a high definition map in that car, uh, you superimpose that map onto what the camera sensors are seeing. And now, effectively, your car always knows where the lane is, even if the lane markings aren't even visible. So it's a good example of how there's this kind of cycle, you know, between driver assistance and full autonomy that we think is real. Um, and, and we're commercially deploying a lot of that today. So you talk about uh, this cycle, and I'm um, within the organization, and I and I'm wondering how closely then teams are working together. It's I don't have a lot of insight into actually the mechanisms of mobile ADAS, the AV piece, and and sort of the legacy businesses and how that's all coming together. So. Are they these teams working separately? You know, the ADAS team, for example, of course, do maybe doing some cross pollination, or is everyone kind of working together and understanding this as a larger ecosystem? When we acquired Mobileye, we made the the kind of conscious decision to do a reverse integration. Uh, which is to say that, um, you know, Intel doesn't always have the best track record for acquisitions, I'll just say. And so one of the things that we decided to do was, you know what, rather than acquire Mobileye and, you know, break them up and sprinkle them all around Intel or impose all sorts of heavy Intel process and, and bureaucracy, we'd keep them distinctly separate and still independent. So we don't screw up their culture. So we don't screw up uh, kind of their more scrappy sort of startup uh, mentality, and we don't screw up you know their ability to innovate at the pace in which they've done so. Uh, and so that's been a, a very uh, good decision in hindsight, and Mobileye is continuing to do really, really well from both a business and technology a development standpoint. Um, but with that, what that allows Intel to do is at Intel, we like to say, that we're sort of the supplier of choice. Um, and whether it's the you know, PC or data center industry where we're selling uh, common products to different companies who are themselves competitors, um, you know, so will Intel do in this space. Um, you know, our partnership, our, our very long partnership with Waymo um, is public knowledge in terms of being a technology supplier uh, to their vehicles. But, you know, on paper, certainly Waymo would be a competitor to what Mobileye is trying to achieve. Um, but that's where ultimately we believe that there, it's a big enough market for a number of different players. Um, and uh, we're happy at Intel that we have different options and choices for them to choose from um, uh, in, in this very competitive market. You know, Intel is known best as a, you, as you say, they're a data company, but 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 it's known best as a, as a hardware company, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and Intel, I'm sorry, and Mobileye um, is sort of you know seen as this sort of hybrid, you know, co-development of of software and hardware, uh, sort of tightly integrated. Mm -hmm. um, how do you manage that that balance between uh, you know the the hardware component of what Mobileye does versus the the sort of traditional 
hardware business that, that Intel does? Are they just kept separately? Is there crossbreeding between them? Yeah, the, the, the way that we approach it is that, um, well, first, you're right. You're totally spot on in the sense that, uh, in a sense, Mobileye is very much a software company. Um, you know, their value add is is the strength of their software and their algorithms. And yes, they've got some elegant and custom designed, co-designed, as you said, hardware uh, that goes with that software. It's really a solution. It's a combination of hardware and software that delivers functions, you know, driver assistance or 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 up to you know full autonomy. And so, going back to that kind of culture integration piece, the, the way that we've approached it is that if there are assets within Intel, and those assets might be technology assets that Intel has, or it might be people assets <laughs> that Intel has that are are interesting or valuable. Uh, for Mobilize success, then Mobilize allowed to kind of reach into Intel and grab those pieces and and integrate those, you know, into the into the Mobileye team. Um, but again, kind of trying to preserve that independence so we're not imposing heavy Intel process or culture, you know, on top of Mobileye just because they wanted to take advantage of a specific asset that Intel might have. And so in that way, you know, Mobileye kind of gets the best of both worlds. They get to continue being you know, a leader in their space and focusing on, on, on software and the way that uh, they do software and the way they do innovation with software, but still benefiting from the hardware assets that Intel has should, should those be available. But at the end of the day, that's their choice. If they want to use them, we don't force any of that on on them. So does that actually happen very often? I mean, how often is Mobileye tapping the resources of Intel or have you found that now or a couple of years past acquisition that, that Mobileye really has continued to operate completely independently and really isn't, you know, reaching out to, you know, Intel resources as often as you might've expected. Yeah, it still happens. Um, so the, the biggest example I can give, um, uh, from day one of the acquisition, basically, one of the things that mobilized customers always wanted uh, was an ability to write their own code to go on the mobile SOCs. Um, but that had never been possible because mobile as a company doesn't really know how to develop SDKs, you know, developer kits for uh, developers on, on more open compute kinds of platforms. Um, and so one of the first things that Mobileye did was found a team, happened to be co-located in Israel, which worked great for them. And that team moved over to Mobileye, and their purpose in life is to deliver an SDK so that customers can develop code on, on the IQ5 um, and BMW. And the partnership that we have with them, in fact, is one of the customers that's actually doing that. So that's an example of kind of a people uh, talent, if you will, that Intel had uh, that Mobileye tapped into. Um, sometime later, um, uh, probably about a year or more into the acquisition, um, mobile, also reached out, um, and found some technology that Intel had around, uh, new kinds of sensing devices based on silicon photonics and some other things like that, that Intel had on, on, on the Intel kind of, uh, research side of the house and, uh, mobilized taking advantage of those assets by doing some, you know, kind of highly experimental, but forward looking research on different kinds of LIDAR sensors, for example, that could use silicon photonics instead of traditional approaches that are used today. So just two quick examples off the top of my head that, that are happening at a, re- at a regular cadence. The first being kind of a people, uh, thing. The second being an actual kind of uh, hardware technology example. 
So we have a, a ton of, of stuff we want to talk to uh, you about, like, you know, safety, uh, mapping, data. But but really quick before we go on, just because this this business integration question is is actually really fascinating to me. Um, how important is it, right? I, you sort of said that that this is sort of an unusual approach for for Intel uh, when it comes to sort of integrating uh, an acquisition. You mentioned that uh, uh, you know part of that was motivated by you know challenges in the past with with you know less than entirely successful acquisitions or, or integrations of acquisitions anyway. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what, is part of what allowed this this relationship to evolve the way it has simply the fact that like. Mobileye actually has like a pretty, unlike say a lot of other uh, companies in the in the AV development space um, that are sort of working towards eventually having a business. Um, Mobileye has sort of strong business fundamentals with its with its ADAS business that it 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 brought like real revenue and customer relationships to the table. Is that what sort of a, one of the things that's allowed this sort of more independent uh, relationship within the Intel sort of family uh, to, to evolve? Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly makes the argument that, uh, you know, don't screw up what's working <laughs> in the sense that uh, if you've got a really healthy, fast growing, profitable business unit, you know, don't touch it, you know, leave it alone because you might mess it up. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that's also unique about Mobileye compared to some of the other examples that you gave is that, you know, there's a lot of companies that are investing, you know, billions and billions of dollars, um, but are basically burning through it because they're not making any money. Uh, until you can remove the driver. Uh, having a strong ADAS business allows Mobileye to essentially cash flow their investment in fully automated driving. Um, and so, and then as I mentioned with the example before, with taking mapping, for example, and applying it to ADAS, actually being able to reuse some of those investments because they've got the scale and driver assistance systems. Um, so that that does present a very unique opportunity for them as a business, certainly. Um, but also, yeah, I think contributes to the fact that it's clearly working. One of the fastest growing business units at Intel, um, you know, hundred percent annual growth rate basically since the acquisition. Um, so they're firing on all cylinders. And uh, wouldn't it be stupid of us at Intel to to screw that up by? you know, forcing a, a stronger integration or something that uh, isn't going to add anything in the end. Yeah. So in speaking of the integration, though, then and in sort of giving Mobileye a lot of the autonomy here, um, you know, I've asked um, Amnon Shashua this uh, in the past, which was, you know, there's this pursuit of ADAS, then there's also this pursuit of full autonomy. And now another layer, this uh, a ride hailing service, which all of a sudden is a completely different kind of business. Um, I, I'm wondering, though, when it comes down to making those types of decisions, so choosing to take, you know, adding this service layer or choosing what partners, BMW being one of them, where does Intel, you know, the executive side of it, re- really weighing in on on this to make sure that on the one hand, you're not messing up Mobileye or screwing it up. On the other hand, sort of making sure that uh, you're not becoming too distracted, right? Not adding too many partners. And, you know, Neo is another recent one. Mm -hmm. So where is Intel on that decision-making tree? Yeah, I think at the the end of the day, uh, Amnon still reports to Bob, our CEO. 
Um, and so uh, each business at Intel is certainly judged on its own for being profitable and having a strategic plan that makes sense and having a plan where Bob and the board believe that we can get a return on the investment. Um, so in a sense, it's not handled any differently than any other business unit. Uh, Mobileye just has a bit more autonomy uh, than some of the others to kind of do things their own way. Uh, but that doesn't mean you know, without oversight <laughs> or or management, if the case may may need to be. Um, but so far, you know, as I said, mobile is kind of firing on all cylinders. But certainly from a strategic standpoint, um, that all still flows up through Bob and, and the board of directors for the company. Uh, you mentioned uh, mapping, and, mm-hmm. and that's something I'm really, uh, I, I kind of want to get into a bit here because um, it seems to me like it's part of this broader opportunity that Mobileye has by kind of having lots of cameras and lots of cars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, really, only Tesla seems to kind of have a, a comparable uh, opportunity in terms of just having a, a really big fleet on public roads, uh, uh, you know, collecting data from from the real world um, at a scale that goes well beyond sort of a, a typical testing or development fleet. Um, and yet it seems like, unlike Tesla, uh, that opportunity at, at, at Mobileye is, is really been focused on, on mapping. Um, and, and so, first of all, so I, I'm, I'm curious, like, wh- where are you with, with our, it's, the road experience management is sort of mm-hmm. the, the, the term for your, your mapping program. So where is that? What kind of scale do you have? And, and sort of why is that, that, that opportunity to collect data been focused on mapping rather than maybe training data? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that to understand first about this mapping challenge is is to kind of compare and contrast traditional methods for how you would do it. Um, so we all know, of course, that, that auto- automated vehicles need high definition maps for doing localization in the real, real world so they can get a precise um, you know, calculation of their, their actual physical location. The typical way that you'd create such maps are to have these kind of highly specialized LIDAR vehicles um, that you drive around and around and around and around in the area in which that you would hope to deploy or operate your automated vehicle, um, generating terabytes and terabytes of data where you're taking physical hard drives out, you're manually ingesting them into a data center, doing a bunch of processing, and then you drive the cars around and around and around again and mix and repeat until you finally have good enough coverage, you know, for an area, a city, you know, downtown area, something like that, that you'd want to deploy. Um, But then, you know, as soon as you stop driving those specialized mapping vehicles around and around, uh, your map's starting to get get out of date already, right? Because the physical environment is not as static as we wish it would be, particularly in countries like China, for example, where there's incredible pace of construction and change in transportation infrastructure. So the traditional mapping approach has just kind of two major flaws. The first is that it's very expensive and time-consuming and costly and from a, both a labor and, and dollars standpoint to generate uh, those maps. And second, as soon as you're done, they're almost immediately out of date. And so it's very difficult for them to stay fresh. Um, and so that's why Mobilize's approach with the uh, road experience management is so unique in the sense that rather than using LiDAR, these cameras, uh, and really just a front forward-facing camera that's already doing your driver assistance function for you is sufficient for gathering information about the environment, both static and dynamic objects. That information is sent up in a small trickle, uh, one kilobit per kilometer, Um, so a tiny amount of data that can easily be handled over current cellular data 
uh, connections. And then in aggregate, you know, across tens and hundreds and eventually millions of vehicles, you essentially kind of auto magically create a map, you know, that's always fresh, uh, that's always up to date, up to date, because all it requires is a human driven vehicle to be driven on that road you know, at some point. And so progress from originally kind of announcing the technology a couple years ago has been pretty remarkable. So uh, we estimate that there will be over a million vehicles doing this kind of harvesting, if you will, in Europe by 2020, and then over a million vehicles equally uh, in the U.S. Um, by, by 2021. Um, even today, we pretty much have most of Europe uh, and a lot of the U.S. kind of already um, already mapped. Uh, we sp- specifically, we think pretty much all of Europe will be done by Q1 of 2020, and then we'll have pretty much most of the U.S. mapped by the by the end of 2020. So the scale at which we can create and generate that map, because we're reliant on hundreds of thousands or re-leverage, I should say, hundreds of thousands and millions of consumer-driven vehicles to generate that map is is incredible. So now we have a very cheap, very easy way to create a map so that wherever we want an automated vehicle to go, we'll already have a map and we don't need to do any kind of costly map creation or acquisition process. Um, I had a question about that. So uh, from what I recall, early this year, Mobileye, and Intel announced uh, that the, you had reached an agreement with Ordnance Survey mm-hmm. to help the UK um, mapping agency bring this sort of high precision location data to businesses in the country. Um, and this is, you know, a, a another revenue generating opportunity. Certainly, has this type of are there more of these type of agreements either in the works or that have you know in other parts of the world? For example, in US, I mean, is this one of a, a new business layer uh, for the company and, and how big of, of a business is the expectation for this to be? Yeah, you're, you're totally right, Kristen, in, in that when we think about that original sort of acquisition cost, um, that was based on the ADAS business, the drive, you know, the automated driving potential, things like that. This data opportunity is a completely new and additive thing um, you know, to the original deal, deal thesis, which which really could just be, you know, frankly, gargantuan. So we're just kind of scratching the surface of it. You mentioned the ordinance survey uh, example um, that's continuing to go well. We've got uh, a dozen or more, a couple dozen uh, companies that are already engaged uh, with Ordnance Survey to buy that service or get access to the data. Uh, and some of the, you know, some of the estimates for revenue from just the UK alone for Ordnance Survey for them is about an additional $70 million per year. Uh, and then you think about the the total, you know, TAM for that kind of asset you know, broadly, and you're easily talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not, you know, billions eventually. And today, what we're doing, don't forget, is we're just tapping into the static information, you know, that's in the map largely. Um, Think about a future where, um, you know, anything somebody would like to know about what's happening in the the environment could be possible. Um, Let's say you've got a, a city that wants to know, you know, how many people cross the crosswalk every day. Um, in fact, we're already doing some of that today in terms of sharing information with cities about where do we see jaywalkers 
because maybe there should be a crosswalk there. Um, maybe you're a retail outlet and you'd like to know how many people are crossing in front of your storefront every day. Um, you know, so basically, if you've got 360 degree vision in the car, uh, anything that the car can see from its place in the road is fair game, you know, to kind of analyze and, and understand uh, and then be able to extract data and insights out of. So really an incredible uh, opportunity that we're just barely scratching the surface of um, that uh, that I think has huge upside around the world, certainly not just in the UK, as you suggested. I'm wondering then what is the potential application and maybe you're already in discussions with AV companies. There's mapping is a, a big part of autonomous vehicles. Um, it's We've had a number of companies, Carmera being one of them, here um, on the show talking about that. It, is there been, has there been discussions or there are agreements already, you know, maybe in the works on essentially providing this type of mapping data to autonomous vehicle companies? And I understand that could potentially um, compete with your own autonomous vehicle network that you're building, but it is also a potentially great revenue source. Yeah, it could be. I think for now, Mobilize focused on leveraging the map for their own um, services and both in terms of an enhanced ADAS, so like a level two plus, you know, as it's commonly called, um, but also for their own uh, mobility as a service fleet and for monetizing data generated from mobile equipped um, human driven vehicles. Between those three things, that's more than enough work to do and, and plenty of business opportunity um, that, that doesn't need to, uh, to expand beyond that at this point. You know, at the end of the day, the thing about mapping that's important to remember and getting data out of mapping is that, um, you know, you can't, you, you can't get the data insights unless you've got the crowd. You know, it's only because mobilize in, you know, millions, you know, 40 million to date, but that this, that this mapping capability will soon be in millions and millions of vehicles, that the value and insight of the data is meaningful, you know, and the fact that that data generation happens across multiple OEM brands across the world means that, you know, certain, let's be honest, right, certain vehicles are driven only in certain parts of the country. <laughs> um, and so unless you're covering multiple brands that hit all different kinds of market segments and all different areas of the country, you're not going to have um, as complete coverage of the information that you're looking for. And so really the existing kind of setup where Mobileye is able to generate that map data from dozens of OEM vehicles across the world that you and I drive uh, on a daily basis, in a sense, kind of already gives them um, that scale uh, that you need for that mapping, uh, that mapping asset to be meaningful uh, and have data insights in it that are valuable. So this this summer, um, you you released along with some partners, I believe, uh, like a hundred and fifty page safety document, um, which like yeah. is is we sort of called it a white paper, but it's more like a doorstop. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, and and it's great. Like it, it's funny because I did not. I I think safety is a really fascinating, and obviously, it's like so core to 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 automated driving as a, as a you know as a thing, right? Like it's, it's, it's fundamental to it. Um, and yet it, it, I feel like it, it this somehow hasn't made like a, a huge impact yet, which is interesting. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that, but, but sort of to, 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 to segue from, from the mapping thing, one of the most interesting things in, in this document to me, and again, I'm, I'm still processing it, um, 
uh, and and still going through it. Uh, but but you you call the HD map a, a reliable sensor. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm curious, like, could you explain that that concept uh, a little bit? Like, how is how is a map a sensor, right? Like, it, that doesn't that's that's not an obvious connection to make. Yeah, at the end of the day, the the map is is sort of um, additional input to the the world model that the vehicle understands. So you've got a world model that's created from the camera uh, and radar lidar, and that's probably another topic we could talk about in terms of what what should be the level of independence between those different sensing channels from a safety standpoint. Um, but that aside, after you've got a world model that's understood by your sensors, the map provides kind of another input. It's like a fourth sensor. Um, some call it ground truth. Um, you know, and, and in, for the most part, you absolutely should be able to trust your map. But what's important is that if you've got information in the map, it helps you corroborate what your sensors are seeing. And so it kind of validates the, the accuracy um, of what your exist your um, cameras, radars, and lidars are seeing, and then allows you kind of localize in the environment. On the other hand, if the map's got something in there that you're not seeing at all, like the map says, hey, there's a stop sign here, and I can't see it. Oh, maybe the reason why I can't see it is because um, there's a big moving truck, you know, parked in front of the stop sign. Um, or my map says, you know, there are three lanes on this road, but I'm only seeing two. You know, I wonder what happened, you know, so maybe there was a construction change or something overnight. So there, it's also useful as an independent kind of sensing source, um, you know, to try to understand and detect changes in the environment um, that are helpful for not only just navigation purposes and things to understand what lanes might be available to to drive in, but certainly for safety purposes as well. Right. Because if you've got, um, you know, entire lanes closed or there's a huge pothole or something that cars ahead of you had seen on the road uh, with a fresh map that's kind of live and being redistributed to other vehicles, um, you've got kind of an eye in the sky in that sense um, that could help cars um, see and avoid obstacles or changes in the environment um, that might be you know, coming from up ahead. So it, it is an incredibly a valuable asset, not just kind of, as I said, for the localization, but also and for the sense of having a, a truer and better understanding of, of the physical environment. Because what you're seeing in the map is basically the creation of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of vehicles passing through that environment and then in an aggregate all com- contributing information to what the map sensor sees, if you will. So in that sense, it in, in most cases should be an extremely reliable sensor that's that's very helpful for operating in the, the crazy real world. Yeah. So, so you, you hinted at um, sort of this uh, a, a kind of broader controversy around sensor modality and, and strategies around the different sensor modalities and, and the priorities maybe that they're given. And, and, you know, unfortunately, like, I, f- I feel like a lot of the discussion, at least in the, the broader public around this, has been sort of framed in, in, in kind of, what for me anyway, are frustrating terms um, by players <laughs> that we don't have to, to name specifically. Name <laughs> um, we, know, we know who they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but, but, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is that, um, you know, Mobileye is, is obviously, as you say, they're, they're known as a, a, a kind of at their core, a software company and, and particularly a computer vision company. And, and so there's at least in some corners, the perception that like, you know, uh, uh, that Mobileye and, and I guess by extension Intel, uh, uh, you know, that, that vision is sort of the core 
part of uh, uh, you know the core modality for for autonomous driving, um, and that potentially that sort of aligns them in in this you know on a certain side of this debate or whatever. I can, can you just sort of you know clarify sort of what is what is Mobileye and Intel's uh, uh, philosophy towards towards the sensor modalities. Um, uh, you know, is is vision the primary one? Are there implications about you know, you know, lidar being unnecessary or or, or potentially radar or uh, just could you could you yeah just clarify? <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. I, I think I think uh, certainly mobilized strength is vision, and so you would think that would um, you you know you might rightly think that that would kind of align us with those who who would say that you know vision is all you need. And frankly, we're not sure that that's wrong. Uh, it may just be a matter of timing and a matter of when. Um, so do we believe that someday, you know, that vision may be all you need? Yeah, I think so. You know, you look at the advancements of vision over the last decade even, and, and we're doing things today that people thought would never be possible, particularly, you know, with mono cameras. Um, so who knows, you know, given another 10, 20 years of innovation and research and computer vision algorithms and sensors and stuff, and maybe it would be possible. You know, at the end of the day, we humans just have two vision sensors um, as opposed to 12. Um, and so maybe it's possible, you know, but for now, uh, no, uh, for now, for safety purposes, it, it's absolutely important to make sure that you've got redundancy and sensing. Um, but this is key as well, though, because the way that you introduce those other sensing modalities is crucial. Because if you're if you're folding your your radar, lidar, and camera into just one kind of blended fused sensing channel, you don't have a lot of independence, you know, or or kind of redundancy between uh, those modalities. And so that's one of the things that Mobileye has been very um, kind of forward looking at is their strength in computer vision allows their vehicles to drive with vision only. You know, and so if you were to find yourself in in Israel, we give you a ride with the camera or the cars that we have there operate with just cameras only. And it, they're quite impressive in terms of what they can do and the complexity of the driving environment just with vision. Now, Mobileye also has cars that have just radars and LIDARs. And those cars can operate on their own as well uh, with just radars and LIDARs and the map, of course. Uh, and so the point is, is if you have two sensing subsystems that are independent uh, and and provide a, a degree of accuracy such that the car is able to operate on their own with just two out of the three sensing types. When you blend those together, not only do you have a much safer vehicle, right? Because if one of the sensing modalities goes out because of, you know, mud on the windshield or, you know, whatever else it might be, uh, you've got a, a, a um, kind of a truly redundant and independent sensing channel that you can that you could continue to rely on, certainly for a short period of time, maybe even longer. Um, but then also, what it means is that the validation burden becomes easier as well. You know, we have this kind of challenge um, with perception being inherently probabilistic. Uh, we can talk about safety, which we believe we can make deterministic, but perception is always going to be probabilistic. And so the goal is, what's the error rate that you'd like to achieve? And so if you would like to achieve, you know, an error rate of something like, you know, 10 to the minus 9 for a sensing uh, mistake of some kind, uh, which would be an incredibly high uh, level, you know, kind of commensurate to aerospace or other industries like that. That's a huge uh, challenge and a huge burden to do that, in part because sort of the data set that you would need to do that is typically one over the probability you're trying to achieve. 
But if instead you have two independent sensing channels, what you can do is you can take down the square root. And so now each independent sensing channel only needs to achieve 10 to the 3.5, which is a much easier validation burden. And now you're only talking about, you know, tens of thousands um, of, of hours of, of validation sets to be able to show uh, that a sensing channel kind of meets that accuracy. So it's both a combination of for safety. We think it's really important to have um, all three sensing types, but to make sure that they're in the car in an independent fashion and truly redundant for each other. Um, but also then that uh, that gives you some significant advantages then from validation standpoint, uh, because the validation burden doesn't need to be as heavy. So we can uh, bring this you know life saving technology to to the world in a safe way. Uh, much quicker um, than we could otherwise if we had to achieve 10 to the minus 9 with a single sensor type all on its own. So I think that Ed and I probably have like 15 follow-up questions, but I did want to just uh, <laughs> ask about, so when you talk about redundancy and perception, you know, some companies um, have that I've spoken to have talked about then also having redundancy on the compute side. So um, regardless, uh, so, so that there's redundancy that in case, let's say, um, the wrong decision is made, there could be potentially one that, um, can override that. The company that springs to mind that does this is Voyage and they have, um, a very, um, they, they, I forget the name of it, but it's basically like a lizard with a one track mind. It's named after <laughs> Rango. That's it. Ringo. The, uh, the Dizzy, yeah. But but basically that that completely separate um, compute will will basically that the decision will be to just stop. It will take over if if all the other decision making capabilities um, essentially fail. And so so wondering if you could talk a little bit about the redundancy um, outside of uh, just the perception side um, and and what else is being created. Yeah, it's a really good question because there, there's two pieces to this. The first is uh, from a hardware standpoint. Um, and so redundancy is often a solution um, to a problem um, that can be solved, though, in a number of different ways. And so, you know, if, if you're concerned about a hardware failure, you know, a power supply failure or a stuck on bit or your memory goes bad or whatever, then, yeah, having a redundant system is helpful to preserve availability. Um, having um, a diverse kind of uh, system that performs the same function but is implemented in a different way is a way to be able to detect failures in the operation of a system because of random bit flips or bit, bit flips or memory errors or, or things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, so you know, redundancy is one way to do it, um, but it's not the only way to do it. You know, and there are algorithmic approaches. Um, that can provide a similar function without the extra cost of having a completely redundant system necessarily, so long as you don't have common cause failures. So if we consider decision making for a moment in terms of how the vehicle makes decisions, here you still have often probabilistic algorithms. You know, these are um, reinforcement learning based algorithms that are making a recommendation that they hope is right, you know, based on uh, what they've learned, past history, uh, training sets, obviously, things like that. But, you know, just as Netflix will sometimes recommend a movie that you had no interest in watching, um, sometimes, you know, the AI is wrong. And sometimes it comes up with a recommendation that's not quite so right. Um, and this is where uh, we've taken an algorithmic approach to solving this problem 
in the form of a safety model that we've introduced called responsibility sensitive safety, which provides a deterministic checker, if you will, deterministic bounds on the decision making capabilities of the automated vehicle. So that if your system has recommended an action that is unsafe, regardless of the reason for it, you know, because it's an algorithmic thing, um, you didn't do a good enough job training your data set or because you've had some, you know, memory bits flip around inside some registers or something, or you've had some sort of stuck on bit in, in a in a CPU somewhere, right? And so you're calculating it wrong at, at, a, at a very low level. doesn't matter the reason. We'll always check the proposed action and say, is this safe? Uh, will this put us into a dangerous situation? And if not, okay, fine, let it go through. If it will, then guess what? You know, we're not letting the car do that. Um, you know, and so you could call that, it's not really redundancy. You know, it's a more elegant kind of uh, way to approach safety um, from, a, from a design standpoint that doesn't suffer from the, just, you know, multiply the cost by two or three X, you know, to kind of solve the problem, which works, you know, but is often kind of a brute force method for addressing an issue that could be handled, you know, differently. So, um, yeah, no, and that, that is a really interesting approach that you, you don't actually hear, you know, sort of referenced a lot, but, but at the same time, like it, it seems just at a high level, like a, a little bit kind of amazing that, that you could reduce all of the complexities of, you know, what you see on the road to sort of some really basic principles that you can check all these recommendations against. Like, how do you get the confidence that, that these, these, these checking function, uh, you know, isn't, is itself safe? Yeah, I mean, sometimes as engineers, we we love to over-engineer things because we can, because it's fun and it's more challenging. And so sometimes the simple solutions are the best. And so the inspiration for for that for the safety model, responsibility sensitive safety, is based on kind of human concepts of what it means to drive safely. So as human drivers, when we're driving around, if we think about it, you know, what are we what are we doing without thinking about it? Perhaps we're we're maintaining kind of a, a bubble if you will, around our car, a safety envelope, if you will. Um, and we're always trying to maintain that in a way that's comfortable for us. And so when somebody encroaches upon that, what do we do? We try to restore our safety kind of distance, our safety envelope. And the reason why we're doing that inherently is because we don't want to crash, you know, and we know that we, that we will need space, which equals time, um, so that we can react to dangerous situations that might be imposed on us by others. And so through a combination of logical rules and Newtonian physics, you can basically calculate very precisely exactly how much safe distance do I need uh, in front of me or to the side of me um, around my vehicle so that if somebody were able to were to do something unsafe and cut me off or something like that, then the car would know how much distance it needs to restore in order to maintain a safe distance following that vehicle uh, or driving side by side that vehicle that's, you know, weaving erratically in the lane, you know, next to us. Um, and so in a sense, that's what the safety model de defines uh, is a number of uh, rules that make sense to humans. Things like maintain safe following distances, um, be cautious in areas of occlusion. Well, what does cautious mean to a machine? Well, let's def let's precisely define that, you know, in terms of how the vehicle should operate um, when we have pedestrians that might be occluded, you know, and 
And, and it's a formal model, so it can be mathematically verified and proven correct. And we've published all the formal proofs for this in a series of academic papers over the last couple of years. Um, and the response by industry has been fantastic. You know, you mentioned that safety first for automated driving uh, white paper that that we and, and many other companies worked on. And, and one of the most important, I think, perhaps unnoticed things in that paper uh, was an, an admission um, and, and a, an endorsement by a group of very esteemed companies, you know, BMW, Audi, VW, Daimler, Aptiv, Conti, Intel, Infineon here, Baidu. I'm sure I'm missing somebody who's going to be upset with me later. But what they said was, is that, look, when it comes to automated vehicles, safety of these vehicles, meaning they shouldn't crash into other things or people, is not something that should be proprietary. You know, we shouldn't have to look at the logo of a car uh, as it's coming down the road to know if we should hop into a storefront. You know, we should, as a public, we should all be able to trust that these vehicles are equally safe. Now, some may or may not get us to our destination. Some may have a better experience inside the car. Um, some, uh, we just might like the brand for whatever reason, right? But they should all be equally trustworthy from a safety standpoint, you know, and that was really kind of, I think, the, a, a really big thing that the, particularly the traditional automotive folks deserve a lot of credit for, because that's an industry that spent a century competing on safety. And so, so, and so to your point, you know, Ed, yes, we do believe that that can be defined deterministically. We've published it all openly for everyone to see. Uh, and we've got, you know, some fantastic support happening across the industry globally, um, you know, who buy into this notion that, you know what, we need to have an open, honest conversation about safety and let's understand and define what that means in a common way for everyone in a transparent way for, pu for the public um, and uh, engage in dialogue with governments to understand, you know, how do we want these vehicles to operate, you know, in the real world, in the countries where they're going to be deployed. Yeah. So w one of the things that that kind of hit me reading this, or, or at least one of my my takeaways, you you reference a lot of the um, sort of existing functional safety, so ISO two six two six two, and then also uh, this newer SOTIF twenty one four forty eight, I think. Uh, yep. Yeah, and and it, it seems like w you know a big part of what you're doing, and and maybe this sort of explains why you've been able to get so much buy in from from so many uh, different players is it, it almost seems like you're trying to take these foundations that were not designed for, for autonomous drive uh, and sort of bring them up, build up on, on top of them, evolve them into uh, uh, this new world uh, that they weren't necessarily designed for, but you know, the principles still in certain ways kind of apply. Is that, does, is that a good way of describing sort of the, the, what you were, what you were going for with this, with this paper? Yeah, I think you're right, because there's a lot of confusion where folks say, why do we need new standards, right? Don't we also already have, you know, ISO 26262, and we've got SOTIF, the 21448 coming, and isn't that enough? And, you know, honestly, and unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> you know, if you were to look at, you know, the complexity of a truly driverless vehicle, and you're correct, Ed, that some of those standards were, were not designed for anything above level two. You know, or maybe they kind of stretch into level three, but they definitely weren't not designed for level four and five. So you're not only starting with a foundation that maybe wasn't designed for a driverless future, but, you know, if you imagine, you know, if, if life uh, were a pizza and there were 12 slices, um, two of those slices, great, already covered. 
you know, by 26262 and, and 21448, but there's 10 more slices, you know. So what is the safety model? What is the decision-making safety model? Well, that's where the RSS piece could fit. Uh, there's some emerging standards efforts around safety assessment reports. You know, is there going to be a common safety assessment report for governments around the world or is each country or even state in the U.S. going to require a different safety assessment report? And that's what UL 4600 is trying to solve. Um, and so if you kind of think about the scope of the challenge that we're tra- that we're facing here, um, even assessment methodologies, we can talk about that for a minute. You know, uh, if, if we, we need a common metric. To measure safety, so that could be the RSS piece that we're working on standardizing. But what's the methodology that you're using to test it? And so, how do we know that different vendors are testing it in the same way? And so that when they arrive at the metric, you know you can believe in the number. There's no standard out there for that yet today. So that's something probably that needs to get worked on as well. So, so we really view it as a collection. Um, of standards that you're going to need that all solve a different piece of the puzzle. Um, that's a much bigger puzzle with many more pieces when you're talking about removing the human driver versus just having something that where the human driver is still the fallback, um, which is what we have, of course, in most driver systems systems today. You mentioned uh, early on you listed a, a number of companies that have signed on to RSS, and and I'm wondering though because there are others out there that are trying to do somewhat similar, although I'm sure you could argue very different types of ideas around standardization. I'm wondering what could threaten RSS. I mean, is it just come down to getting um, as many automakers and AV companies to sign in as possible and and therefore, you know, that will be the idea that is, that, that becomes a standard? Or is there another threat to it just not really taking off in the way that, that, you know, mobile line Intel hope. Well, I think the first thing to do is, yeah, build that coalition, which is, as you've seen, you've seen is happening. Uh, The second is um, formalize uh, the concept in an industry standards uh, organization. So stay tuned for some announcements soon about that. Um, But then the third piece, which we haven't talked about too much, of course, is engagement with governments, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are that are defining um, and authoring the regulatory framework under which these driverless vehicles are going to be allowed to be commercially deployed and not just under these continued test exemptions today. And, um, you know, governments have increasingly, you know, gotten smart about these, you know, kind of the typical metrics like miles driven and disengagements where they've said that, look, you know, interesting ish, but really not sufficient to convince me that your vehicle is safe. Because how do I know your miles are meaningful? You might have tested on a one lane road with no traffic signals, no pedestrians, no other cars, no nothing. You could drive a trillion miles. That doesn't mean your car is safe because, you know, you're driving and uh, the easiest road in the world, you know, um, even disengagements is something that, well, you want to have a low number of disengagements. Um, you know, some, a company could be doing really, really tough testing in urban environments and have a low disengagements and that'd be great. But somebody could also just be doing really easy testing and never driving at rush hour traffic and just, you know, avoiding scenarios where you'd have to disengage. So the point is statistics can be gamed, uh, and that's why they're just not sufficient. Uh, but what governments also don't like is this, hey, just trust me, <laughs> it's proprietary magic. Uh, and I can't explain it to you because it's AI uh, and you wouldn't understand it even if I did, you know, and governments don't like that either. 
And so they've really uh, responded positively to our, you know, kind of much more open arm, transparent, you know, hey, let's have an honest conversation about safety and also understand that safety is something that inherently is a trade off between um, uh, risk. You know, the act of driving is inherently risky. You know, we all make decisions as human drivers every day. Uh, to get to where we need to go, where we're making aggressive and assertive maneuvers just to, you know, create space and to blend into traffic. And so, you know, an automated vehicle that is, you know, the safest automated vehicle in the world would never leave the garage. And so how do we balance safety and usefulness or safety and practicability, uh, as the USDOT talks about it, to understand that it is a balance, you know, and we could have the safest vehicle in the world, but we don't want it to annoy the hell out of everybody on the road because it's got a 10 vehicle length following distance, right? So how do we define that balance? How do we formalize it? How do we measure it? How do we understand it? That's what RSS is trying to solve. And so as a useful tool, not just for industry, you know, to standardize, but also for government to understand, because then they can set the parameters in the model to say this is the balance between safety and usefulness that we would like. This is the balance that we would like. And because driving safely is cultural, means it's something very different to drive safely in China than it does in the U.S. or Italy versus Germany. Uh, And that's just life, you know, (laughs) the cultural differences that make the world a wonderful place, which says you can't have a common definition for safety around the world. You've got to have a model that's that's parameterized that allows you to adjust and tune it, not only to respect cultural differences, but even over time. You know, as we get more comfortable with the technology or we learn new things, you want to be able to adjust that for different times of day, for weather conditions, you know, things like that. So. I don't know if you can handle this with a yes or no, but but I, I got to ask it. Is this leading towards like sort of a, a scenario-based assessment? Uh, it, it kind of seems like that's, that's certainly what, what we've, we've spoken to some other folks um, about sort of this need to build up. Sort of, a, a, a sort of libraries of, of scenarios and 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 ways to standardize scenarios and communicate about scenarios. I certainly see some of that in 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 this the safety document. Is that is that kind of where this is going? Is toward building corpuses of scenarios that can then be used to sort of standardize some of this uh, safety assessment? We would we would say no because you can okay. always create one more scenario. And so if you have a finite set of scenarios, people fall into a trap and they develop to the test. Right. You know, as a human driver, when we take our driver's test, we don't drive 10,000 scenarios. We drive for 30 minutes. And of course, they're looking to see if we obey speed stop signs, stuff like that. But what they're really looking for is behavioral characteristics. Do you have the foundational principles of what it means to be a safe driver? Things like maintaining safe following distance. Are you being appropriately cautious around pedestrians and things like that? Are you giving right of way even if somebody is sort of cutting you off or something? These are the things that are universally applicable to any driving scenario and what allows us humans to get a license and pretty much drive anywhere. Uh, and so that's what the RSS model embodies. And so, sure, you got to test something at some point. So, yeah, we'll need some scenarios defined as you go through different test methodologies. But those really should be a guide, not a finite, you know, litmus test. Right. That makes sense. Any other fast questions you want to ask, Ed, before we wrap this up? Unfortunately, I feel like all my questions are like ones that will require 20 minute answers. (laughs) (laughs) How how about you, Kirsten? Well, I mean... It's it's a bit of an obvious one, but when you look at the trajectory of mobile and going into greater and greater levels of automation, I, at the same time, also sort of seemingly separate uh, 
working and developing on autonomous vehicle technology and it, and it kind of focusing on the ride hailing services piece. How interested is Intel slash Mobileye in providing a system or a kit somewhat like we've seen this new startup that's come out of Stealth Ghost, but with the relationship that Mobileye has with automakers would be embedded, that would essentially turn private vehicles into um, on-highway, potentially uh, the equivalent of a level four vehicle. So no no handover necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there been any exploration of that at all is that a no-go area um yeah from a from a technical standpoint it's absolutely something that um that's achievable mobile has something called the av kit or automated vehicle kit which itself is basically a retrofit kit that adds fully automated uh, driving functionality to an existing vehicle um, you know, the partnership that we have with volkswagen to deploy a ride hailing service in israel leverages that uh, we've also announced a, a deal with uh, Beijing Public uh, Transport Service. I probably screwed up their name, um, but you know buses, obviously, and so uh, largest trans- you know public bus company in the world. Uh, they're also uh, using that retrofit kit. So for us, it's it's not a matter of of technical um, feasibility. I think the bigger question is just really comes down to cost, and that's why um, you know Amnon has said that robo taxis we think is going to come first because you can deal with a higher level of cost for those vehicles because of just the you know business model and structure for a ride hailing service. And so that's where we think these vehicles are, this technology is going to get deployed first. You have some benefit of potentially being able to geofence, so you can kind of phase your rollout. Um, but we do believe that eventually, absolutely, you will have consumer vehicles um, that will be uh, level four vehicles. Uh, and perhaps it's built in from the car um, that you purchase from the OEM, perhaps it could be a retrofit kit. You know, Mobileye has a robust aftermarket business today that uh, adds driver assistance functionality to existing human-driven vehicles that weren't built that way from the factory. Um, so I think really it's it's less a technical issue and more just kind of a cost uh, business and, and timing issue on when that might happen. Could uh. One more thing. Couldn't, it, couldn't you then essentially do what Tesla says that they want to do, which is, you know, the Tesla robotaxi model, which is the theoretically when all Teslas become self-driving, then those owners of those vehicles under the Tesla network can lease them or, you know, use them for ride hailing services. Couldn't Mobileye do the same, essentially the same thing, um, allowing, giving automakers or private consumers the tools to be able to do that and then just charge a service fee? Yeah, I think that's where we have to consider the role of the operator at the end of the day, because the operator does have an important role to play in the management of the vehicles, the management of the fleet. Um, They make sure the cars are in good working order, you know, that the tires have air, the engine has oil, or that the battery's charged, or uh, the car's clean. You know, so there's a lot of these kind of intangible things where, you know, technically it might be possible. Um, but in practice, you know, having a traditional kind of consumer ride hailing service kind of relationship is important uh, because the operator can bear a lot of um, 
responsibility for making sure that the vehicles are operating safely. Uh, and they've got a relationship then directly with the customer. Um, you know, we'll see how if there's alternate kind of business models that emerge. Um, I think the technology is such that it can be you know, integrated in a variety of different ways. And we'll just have to see how that plays out in the future in terms of is it a you know, kind of an Airbnb style, I'm throwing my car into the pool, or is it, you know, I'm still using, you know, an Uber or a Lyft type service, uh, and they're the ones that are taking all the responsibility and management overhead of making sure the fleet of vehicles is in good working order, so that when I order one of the vehicles, I, I can trust that it's going to be in good shape, as opposed to the, you know, one out of a dozen, you know, houses you rent and you're like, well, this one's a stinker. Not at all how it was represented, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you've been following the news around Airbnb, uh, you, you translate some of the stuff that's been happening there into the AV space and, and things could get kind of scary. Um, yeah, I think it could. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, which to me, I think makes it sort of all the more important and interesting that, um, you know, real standards are, it sounds like starting to coalesce and, and the little teaser that you mentioned, uh, uh, before about keeping your eyes out, uh, or, or, you know, keeping an eye out for, uh, for it sounds like some kind of coalescing standard, um, is really exciting. Um, it certainly has motivated me to go back and, and read this 150 page document for like the fourth time, uh, and, and see if I can, can really integrate a little bit more. I definitely recommend everybody, uh, who, who enjoys this show. I mean, I think you can learn so much about AVs. I think it, it goes beyond sort of just what Intel is doing. I think it, it's just a really great way to understand, uh, uh, how to think about AVs and safety. Um, so, uh, Thank you for for putting that out there as an educational tool. Um, it, you know, we do unfortunately have to go, um, and I am hoping that maybe when this hinted at announcement uh, uh, happens, that maybe we can have you back and and sort of drill down a little bit more into just the standard part, um, because this was I think this is a really good sort of overview of of sort of where Intel Mobile I were at, which is something that I certainly needed, and I think the public maybe did too. But um, I'd love to drill down more into this stuff. Um, so hopefully that's something you're interested in. And in the meantime, if people want to maybe read this document or follow more about what, what you all are doing in the space, uh, what's, what's going to be the best way for, for folks to find that? First, absolutely. would love to come back. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I love the show. So, uh, it's an honor to be here and to speak with both of you and maybe we'll have Alex next time as well. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of uh, where to get that document, um, online, certainly at intel.com or, or mobileye.com. We've got a lot of that stuff listed. Um, and so please reach out. Uh, those who know me, come find me. Find me on LinkedIn. We'd be happy to engage with folks on this topic and, and build more support for having a real, honest conversation about safety and what that means you know, for automated vehicles. Absolutely. Well, um yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, a pleasure, and uh, we're definitely uh, excited to see what else is uh, coming down the line. Fantastic. Or the road. Or the road. Or the road. <laughs> or the road. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Jack Weiss from Intel. My pleasure. Thank you both. 